We are continuing our sermon series titled, We Are Coral Ridge. And in this sermon series, what we hope to do is unpack our vision. Uh, We introduced the vision to you all uh, two weeks ago, uh, and it's also found in your bulletin. I believe we have it up uh, for the screens as well this morning. But our vision is to be a gospel-centered church that offers hope for all people here in South Florida through reconciliation and renewal. And so what we want to do each week is unpack this vision. What are the things that are going to animate the vision of Coral Ridge as we move forward? Last week, we looked at what does it mean to be a gospel-centered church as we looked at the life, uh, the gospel-centered life of the woman at the well. Uh, This week, we're going to look at this idea of reconciliation. We're going to look at the idea of reconciliation. What does that mean for Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church as we move forward? Why is this part of our vision? Why is this one of the key things that's going to animate our vision moving forward? We really believe that there's there's two ultimate things that the gospel does. A gospel-centered church and a gospel-centered life leads to the ministries of reconciliation and renewal. We'll unpack renewal next week, but we really believe that it leads to reconciliation and renewal. The reconciliation of all people and the renewal of all things. So for this week, we're going to look at reconciliation. We're going to look at uh, two passages this morning. I actually added one uh, that is not listed in your bulletin, but we're going to look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's going to be our first passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. And then we're going to look at the gospel of Matthew. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. We're going to see in 2 Corinthians where Paul really drives home the theology and the ministry of reconciliation. But I want us to look at what does this look like on the ground? How did this ministry of reconciliation for God flesh itself out, particularly in the gospel story in Matthew chapter 21? What does reconciliation look like? So first, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. Hear the word of God. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerar by Tamar. 
and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amadidab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and, fa- and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Joseph, uh, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers as the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shittil, and Shittil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, And Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Thank you. I appreciate that. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. God, thank you for your word, your rich, detailed, specific, and precise word that we know is inspired the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, today I pray that we would not just look at your word as mere details and names, but show us that you have something beautiful, a beautiful story, a story of reconciliation. May we see it and savor it and maybe be transformed by it. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Philip Yancey, in his book, uh, What is So Amazing About Grace, tells this story about a girl by the name of Daisy. And Daisy grows up in a large home with many siblings. Her father is an alcoholic and basically runs off the family, runs off, puts the family in a position where the mother and the children have to leave. And Daisy, being the oldest child, said, and having enough understanding to know what was going on, vowed to never see her father again. Well, fast forward uh, many years later, the father eventually resurfaced. And he had sobered up and he vowed to never touch alcohol again, but he moved about eight houses down from Daisy and Daisy swore she would never reconcile with her father. Never. 
And siblings would encourage Daisy, you've got to go see your father. Now that you have children, they would love to see your grandchildren. They would love to see Margaret, your daughter. And she refused. She said, I have no father. I have no desire to reconcile with him. Well, because of years of alcohol and not taking care of himself, he was dying in his home, her father. And the siblings tried to reach out one last time. Your, your father is days away from dying. Will you not go see him just one time? And she was stubborn and she refused. I have no father. I have no desire to reconcile with him. But she did allow her daughter Margaret to go visit him. And it said Daisy did consent to let her child, Margaret, visit their grandfather. And nearing the end, the father saw a little girl come to his door and step inside. Oh, Daisy, Daisy, you've come to see me at last, he cried, gathering her in his arms. The adults in the room, though, didn't have the heart to tell him that the girl was not Daisy, but her daughter, Margaret. Philip says, Philip Yancey says, he was hallucinating grace. So longing to be reconciled with his daughter, so longing to turn that page, even in the face of seeing his granddaughter Margaret, so badly he wanted it to be his daughter, Daisy. I wish the story had a happy ending. The the daughter and the father never did reconcile with one another. You see, when you are at odds with somebody and you are unreconciled with somebody, you feel it. The world could be going great. Life could be going great. And if you are at odds with one person, it keeps you up at night. It doesn't feel right. It could be a friend. It could be a family member. It could be a spouse. It could be a child. It could be a coworker. And like I said, life could be fantastic But when you're divided and at odds with that one person, it consumes your thoughts. It consumes your heart. There's something deep down inside of you that goes, this is not right. This is not how it was supposed to be. And the Bible tells us that ultimately every single person in this room is born unreconciled. And the reality is the Bible tells us that every single person in this room is born unreconciled to God. You were born at odds with God. The Bible says you were born at enmity with God. And because of the unreconciliation that you experience vertically, it pours out into relationships. And we see brokenness and broken relationships and unreconciliation all throughout our lives, in our family, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, throughout our country, throughout the world. We are an unreconciled people. I love it. Thank you. And the Bible tells us that there has to be something that happens outside of us that makes all the wrongs right. That brings this chaos and confusion of unreconciled relationships. That there has to be someone that makes it right. And what the beautiful news is this morning, that Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the very passage we read today, he says, you have a ministry. If you are a believer, if you are part of the church, he says you have a very particular, specific ministry. It's called the ministry of reconciliation. 
It's the ministry of allowing people to know that they can be right with God because of the life and work of Jesus Christ. And he says, it's not your work of reconciliation. He says, it's God's work of reconciliation. He says, you're an ambassador for reconciliation. And the good news this morning is that God is on a mission to reconcile people to himself so that they can experience a right relationship with God and through that experience, reconciliation with the entire world. Paul says that God is reconciling the entire world to himself. But before we unpack 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want us to look at that other passage that we read, that long list of names that seems useless for us here on a Sunday morning. Dive into 2 Corinthians chapter 5 because I want to I unpack the theology of reconciliation. Well, before we really unpack the theology of reconciliation, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 1 because it's in Matthew chapter 1 that we see a very important story. It's the Jesus story. And it's in Matthew chapter 1 that Matthew outlines for us how Jesus came to be. How did he come to earth? We want to see where he came from and, and what his line looked like and what his genealogy was. We want to see how did this story of Jesus start finally all throughout the Old Testament. We're waiting for this man. We're waiting for the Messiah. We're waiting for the anointed one. And in Matthew chapter 1, we're given Jesus. And what's amazing in Matthew chapter 1 is that this epic moment in history, finally the Messiah has come, and and you would think Matthew chapter 1 would start off by saying, in a galaxy far, far away. Or or maybe uh, once upon a time there was a dragon. Some epic fairy tale, some epic story, and it it, it, kind of leaves us like, what? This is how you introduce Jesus to the world? By rattling off a list of names that we can barely pronounce and understand? But don't miss something. What Matthew is trying to show us is that Jesus' arrival to bring about reconciliation in this world is not a fairy tale. That Jesus is not a myth. That it's real. It happened in history. It really happened. It is something of fact. It is something of truth. And I think it's important for us to understand what Matthew was trying to accomplish here in this genealogy. Because see, it's not just a genealogy of names. It's a story. It tells us a story of how Jesus came to this earth. It's Jesus' story. And it's the story of stories. You see, in a genealogy for the ancients, a a, a genealogy was your resume. And the ancients loved genealogies because it proved your credibility, especially for somebody that was going to claim to be the king. And so this genealogy was not just a list of names as you would find on Ancestry.com. This genealogy told a story. It proved Jesus' worth. It proved Jesus' credibility. That what was going to make this king, Jesus, different from all the other kings that we saw... How would he have the right to call himself the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? And the two things that we see here in Matthew chapter 21 is we see God reconciling all people, and I emphasize the word all people, reconciling all people to himself, but we also see God reconciling all people to each other. So two big ideas in Matthew chapter 1, God reconciling all people to himself and God reconciling all people to each other. So all people to himself. 
What do we see here in Matthew 21 that if we have any understanding of some of the names, listen here, should just jump off the page? Well, as I said, if a genealogy was to prove your worth and your credibility as a king, and this kind of served as your resume for why I am the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's a few names in here that I probably, if Jesus had a PR team, probably shouldn't have included. Let's look at them. First of all, we see a woman in verse 3 by the name of Tamar. Well, what's, what's the big deal about Tamar? Well, Tamar slept with a man by the name of Judah. Okay. Problem is Judah was her father-in-law. Ooh. That's, uh, ooh, boy, I, Jesus, I, Tam, I wouldn't have included Tamar in here, the woman that tricked her father-in-law to sleep with. I just probably would have nixed that one. Okay, well, well, we'll give it a pass. I mean, that's Tamar. Wouldn't have included her, but whatever. Um, but okay, we go down a little further and we go, ooh, verse five, Rahab. Ooh, Rahab, the, the woman of the night, the, the Canaanite prostitute. I pro- Ooh. Okay, so we've got uh, Tamar, the woman that slept with her father-in-law. We've got Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute. Um, okay, maybe it gets better. Uh, and then we've got down here in verse 5 as well, we see a woman by the name of Ruth. Well, what was Ruth? Ruth was a Moabite. Wait, wait, wait. Moabites were, were the very ones that cursed God, right? Moabites were the ones that would, were never able to enter the promised land because they cursed and offended God. Okay, so you've got Tamar, up with her father-in-law. You've got Rahab, the woman of the night. And then you've got a Moabite by the name of Ruth who was cursed by God. It's got to get better, right? And then in verse 6 we read, ooh. They don't even put her name in. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife. They don't even put her name in there. The wife of Uriah. Who was the wife of Uriah? Bathsheba. The woman who was an accomplice to her husband's murder. And slept with David. And so we have here Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, all part of the genealogy and lineage and story of how Jesus came to earth. What in the world is Matthew doing here? Make no mistake about this. That Matthew's attempt to show that Jesus was truly the King of Kings and Lord of Lords was not to show and to prove that he comes from a line that is pristine. He shows and wants to show us, his church, that Jesus comes from a line and that his blood flows through women, women who are Gentiles, women who have immoral past. And what he's doing here is he's redeeming their past. He's redeeming their name. He's reconciling them to God and saying, regardless of their gender, regardless of their story, regardless of their name, regardless of where they've come from geographically or culturally, Matthew is putting them into the Jesus story right here in Matthew 21 to show that God is reconciling not just 
one group of people, but all types of people to himself, regardless of gender, regardless of culture, regardless of their past. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba would have, if you were to make this story up, would have never been included in a genealogy in a thousand years. That's how we know this is true. Because God wants us to show this is a different type of king. This is a different type of Lord. This is a different type of Messiah than you were anticipating. See, the message of the gospel tells us that reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation is God's attempt to bring all types of people together into one family. And that's what we experience here at Coral Ridge. That's why it is such an important part of our vision. I once heard a pastor say that this genealogy here in Matthew 21 is the genealogy for the outsiders, for the people that our world has cast off. And so when we think of a church that has a vision to reconcile people, it is a vision to reconcile all types of people, the Ruths and the Rahabs and the Tamars and the Bathshebas, of our world and of our community, all being reconciled to God. But we shouldn't be surprised, right? Isn't this the whole story of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation? Isn't this what we read about last week with the Samaritan woman? Extended grace? Isn't it the story of Jonah and the evil Ninevites? Even they received the grace of God? Isn't it the Ethiopian eunuch we read about and the man born blind and the prodigal son and even the man writing this genealogy? Matthew, what was his occupation? He was a good-for-nothing tax collector. Can you imagine the delight of Matthew writing this genealogy? Rahab's included and Ruth's included and Bathsheba's included, Tamar's included, and me, a tax collector, shunned by society, an outsider, I get to write the first message of the story of Jesus. Can you imagine the delight? But here's the good news, and receive this as good news, that the story of Jesus reconciling people to God is not a story of keeping Rahab and Tamar and Bathsheba and Ruth where they're at, but as a story of redemption. He brings us out of the muck and the mire. What does it say going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. You see, the story... Praise God that the final chapter written about the life of Tamar was not that she slept with her father-in-law. But the final chapter about the life of Tamar is that she was used by God centuries ago to bring us the Messiah. That Matthew's legacy is not as the good-for-nothing tax collector, but it's the man who gave us the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, when the gospel affects you and changes you, it transforms you from the inside out. It takes you out of the muck and the mire. It takes you out from that place of darkness and brings you into the light. There's life change. There's transformation that happens in your life. That the final chapter of your life is not what you have done in the past, but it's what God has done and continues to do in your life as he sanctifies you and he makes you a new creation. You have a new story. You have a new identity in Christ. 
And so Matthew chapter 21, using all of these names, is to simply tell us that God is on a mission to reconcile all types of people. But it doesn't end with just reconciling people to himself. God also is on a mission to reconcile people to one another. Well, where do we get that here? We get it in verse 6. How is God reconciling people to each other? It says in verse 6 that Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now we've already identified that the wife of Uriah is who? It's Bathsheba. But did you ever wonder why Matthew didn't include Bathsheba? He could have. I mean... He used Tamar, he he used Ruth, he used Rahab. I mean, he was kind of on a roll, right? Just throw in the name Bathsheba. It's not a mistake. It's interesting, other translations actually include the word name Bathsheba as if, because the original language doesn't have it in there, and the other translations add the word Bathsheba as if the Matthew, the original author, forgot her name or something. But I don't think it was meant to be that way. I think what Matthew is trying to do is intentionally suppress the name of Bathsheba. Why? Who does he add instead? He adds the name Uriah. Uriah was Bathsheba's husband, right? That was murdered by David. But what was Uriah known for? Uriah was the Uriah the Hittite. The Hittites were Gentiles. It was a Gentile convert to Judaism that pledged his loyalty to David, and David had him murdered on the battlefield. And what Matthew is doing here is he is intentionally suppressing the name Bathsheba. He could have added her. He added every other woman. He added every other immoral woman. Why wouldn't he add the name Bathsheba? He's intentionally suppressing the name Bathsheba, and he's bringing to light this man by the name of Uriah. Why? Uriah's... Okay. He he did nothing. He's a Gentile. He's the Hittite. He didn't do anything to bring about the line of Jesus. I think there's a reason why Matthew included the name Uriah. There's no other reason other than this. I think what Matthew wanted us to see is that not only does God reconcile all types of people, but he reconciles people together. You see, in a genealogy, when names were included together, that meant unity. There was a sense of unity, and what Matthew is trying to do here by pairing the names David and Uriah together is he's unifying two enemies together. How? We see Uriah, what Matthew wants us to see is that Uriah did not die in vain. The Gentile did not die in vain because it was through the scandalous assassination of Uriah the Gentile that eventually would bring about the savior of the world. And that savior of the world would not just be the king of the Jews, but it would also be the king of the Gentiles. And I think what Matthew wants us to see here is that Uriah did not die in vain. And can you imagine, can you imagine, think about this for a second. The day David dies and he goes to heaven and he sees Abraham and David sees Moses and he sees Noah. And then who does he see? He sees Uriah. Can you imagine what that scene was like when David looks at Uriah and realizes and understands that through Jesus Christ being both the king of the Jews and the king of the Gentiles, 
that they find their union and their reconciliation in Christ and Christ alone. What an amazing scene that must have been. You see, what Jesus and Jesus alone does is not only reconciles us to God, but he reconciles the most fiercest enemies. He he reconciles people that are estranged from each other. The most ardent enemies, arch rivals, David and Uriah, reconciled together in this genealogy through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what we do as a church. We not only long to see people reconciled to God, but we long to see people reconciled to one another, people that are different and look different and talk different and come from different backgrounds. We long to see the church to be a picture of one reconciled family. That's why we break up into smaller groups and we have Bible studies and women's ministry and men's ministry and children's ministry and teenagers and youth ministry and you name it. The reason why we even come here on Sunday morning, sure, it'd be easy. If, if everybody that came to church one time, we could easily mail them a Bible and email them the sermon notes and call it a day. The whole reason we do all of this is just a picture. It's a picture of what God is doing reconciling people that don't look like each other and sound like each other and come from different backgrounds. It's the reason we don't stop gathering throughout the week and the young adults go do their thing and the women go do their thing and we break up into fellowship groups and gatherings, smaller gatherings all throughout the week because it's continually a picture of a reconciled family of God. You see, when reconciliation seems impossible... And that impossible reconciliation could be with the person sitting right in this room this morning. Believe that Jesus has the power to break down those walls and to break down those barriers for us to become one. There might be somebody in this room that you are unreconciled with this morning. There's people in your family, there are friends, there are co-workers, there's people that you are living life with every day. And Jesus is the only answer. The only answer for David and Uriah being mentioned in the same sentence or in the same breath. A reconciled family of God. And the good news for you this morning is that your story can be part of this story. And reconciliation through Jesus Christ is offered to everyone who believes in Jesus. How does this happen? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It is through the substitution of Jesus Christ, him taking our sin and him graciously giving us his righteousness and his benefits that we can be called a son or a daughter of God. That is how reconciliation is possible this morning. That's how reconciliation is possible between you and God, and that is how reconciliation is possible even in the midst of this room here this morning. That your story can be Jesus' story. That your name can be added to this list of people that become sons and daughters of God. Everyone here this morning feels the weight, feels the burden of being estranged, being divorced, being in a broken relationship, and only Jesus can solve that. Let me close with this. 
There's a man by the name of Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson is uh, uh, instrumental in uh, uh, developing uh, one of the uh, uh, law practices and law studies up at Harvard. And Brian Stevenson uh, actually represents uh, inmates on death row in Alabama. And Brian Stevenson wrote a book, and in the book he tells a story that changed his life. Brian Stevenson, when he was 10 years old, went to church every Sunday with his mom. And Brian Stevenson, uh, one day, was playing with his friends after church, and there was a, a new kid that was brought to church. And Brian Stevenson recalls that this new kid seemed a little shy, and so they went up to talk to him and quickly found out that this new boy had a stuttering problem. They could barely make any words out. And the group of boys uh, began to make fun of him and began to ridicule him. And then all of a sudden, in the corner of his eye, Brian says, I saw my mom give me that look. And she pointed at me and she said, come here now. And Brian Stevenson said, I'll never forget that day when my mom looked at me. And she says, this is not how we treat other people. But mom, but no, 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 you will not open your mouth. And this is what you need to do. You will go over to that boy and you will apologize to him. But mom, I didn't do it. No, you will go and apologize to that boy. And so Brian turns around and he walks off. And he feels the hand, the hand of his mother on his shoulder and turns around and says, not only will you apologize to him, you will hug him. Mom, boys don't hug? What? You will apologize to him and you will hug him. And he walks around. He said, no, no, I'm not done with you. You will apologize and you will hug him and you will tell him that you love him. What? And he goes sheepishly off to the boy, the new boy. Lost for words. Now Brian's the one that's lost for words. And he says, I'm sorry. And they kinda, he kind of does one of these awkward lean leans and leans in to go for the hug and the boy with the stuttering problem grabs him and pulls him close and Brian doesn't know what to do so he just whispers in his ear uh, I love you <laughs> and the other boy says and I love you too and he said that changed his life because it was in that moment that he Brian realized that he was more broken than that boy you see, it is the love of God displayed through Jesus that only makes reconciliation possible. It is the love of Jesus displayed on the cross that melts the human heart to recognize that I can now be reconciled with my Father and I can be reconciled with the people in this room. And that is what we've been called to as a church. The very words of Paul we are ambassadors for reconciliation to go out into the streets of South Florida with one message. I implore you, I implore you to be reconciled to God. The good news this morning is that Jesus' story can be your story. And for all of the people that are living in South Florida, my prayer is that as we move forward as a church, that they would look at Coral Ridge and they would say, it's that church 
At that church, I could hear one message that I can be reconciled to God and it changes their life forever. The promise of hope for all people in South Florida. There was a dragon, you know, and there was a prince. And the prince lifted the curse and defeated the dragon. And all those that are found in him lived happily ever after.